Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Fagro Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The market had a bounce as gas prices continued to drop and the U.S. economy doubled employment expectations to some 500,000 new jobs, a move that reassures the administration and is good for workers, but worries Wall Street that higher inflation is on the way. More firms on both sides of the Atlantic posted earnings, including Air Lease, Bombardier, Embraer, Hensoldt, HII, Lidos, Mercury Systems, Parsons, Rheinmetall, Rolls-Royce, Spirit Aerosystems, Teledyne, uh, Triumph Group, and more. And Airbus has canceled a 20-plane order for A350 jetliners with Qatar, the latest step in an unprecedented drama between the jet maker and the Gulf Kingdom over the quality of the wide-body planes, or I should say the Gulf uh, Kingdom's air carrier. Uh, Qatar was the launch customer for the A350 and says that peeling paint has exposed lightning protection, constituting safety concerns. Uh, where Airbus and European regulators claim the issue is uh, cosmetic. Uh, China's overreaction to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's historic visit to Taiwan with four days of live fire demonstrations around the island by Chinese forces. As Beijing says, it is testing its ability to encircle the nation in preparation for a potential future blockade or invasion that is serving to uh, as further impetus to economically disconnect from Beijing. This as Russia's war on Ukraine grinds on and Washington increases sanctions on Moscow and promises more weapons to Kiev in advance of a Ukrainian offensive uh, in the south of the country. And in a deal that would create the nation's fifth largest airline, JetBlue has agreed to buy Spirit Airlines, ending a somewhat long-running drama for the air carrier. Uh, joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Amalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy back to the DC Bureau uh, after a bout uh, in Basque country and Croatia. I should point out Sash remains in London, but now Ron is in the Dublin Bureau, at least for the recording of this uh, program. Guys, welcome to the program. Great to have you back on, as always. It's great to be here, Vargo. Thanks. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Vargo. Thank you. Always great to be on and uh, great to be back in D.C., not far from where you're based. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. And check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful uh, weekly look at all things space, which is what these two weekly programs are supposed to do. Ron, uh, great employment numbers, uh, strong, broader market. Walk us through the macro issues and how they impacted the defense and aerospace group and equities. Yeah, I mean, if, if you look at the, the market performance this week, um, it's been you know up and down, right? I mean, the 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 S and P uh, this week was about roughly flat, um, and then if you look across uh, our universal coverage, uh, probably the biggest losers were some of the smaller cap space names we follow. Uh, Virgin Galactic reported, and uh, Astra reported that they're having both having some technical difficulties that are pushing uh, things out, and the stocks reacted very very negatively to that. 
Uh, we had a couple of the BizJet uh, companies report this week, and um, you know the BizJet demand kind of across the board. We've discussed this before. Um, has been strong. Uh, we can talk about it in a little bit later, but kind of maybe where it's going. Um, but the, for the most part, uh, the, the manufacturers of uh, business aircraft uh, did well this week. You know, Bombardier is up uh, kind of mid single digits, call it six and a half, seven percent. Uh, Embraer is kind of chasing not too too far behind. Actually, Embraer was up uh, almost thirteen percent this week. Um, so it was, it was kind of a kind of a mixed bag, honestly. I mean, the defense contractors were roughly flat. Uh, and then, uh, so, you know, it kind of is what it is now, what, what's interesting from a market perspective. So the jobs number came in better. Um, and I should have said it's, it's around five, five twenty eight thousand uh, was, was the number, right? Almost double expectation. So the real question becomes now, you know, where, where is inflation, right? Because if, if the Fed isn't doing enough to slow down the economy, that's one way to read the jobs number, um, and inflation's still high, the Fed's going to have to raise more. Um, if inflation is, you know, starts coming down, um, then then maybe we're in sort of a, like a kind of a nice copacetic place. So so we'll see. Uh, and then the question is, you know, what what is a comfortable level for inflation? Uh, I think there's some expectation that, you know, I think it's August 10th, you're going to see another um, read of inflation. Um, if that's call it 8%, that's probably too high. If it's 6%, it's still too high, but it's moving the right direction. Um, so, so we'll ultimately see, I mean, in the end, we have negative real interest rates, right? And very negative real interest rates right now. And then that's probably not sustainable. So right. there's a fair amount of uncertainty bouncing around in, in the market on this. Notably, you know, oil did decline this week. Um, you know, sort of, if you split the difference between Brent, uh, Brent crude uh, and um, WTI is, you know, call it around 90 bucks a barrel. Um, the VIX came down. That's a measure of volatility into the, into the low 20s. But interest rates ticked a little higher. We're still kind of just hovering just below three, around, you know, 2.8, 2.9% uh, on the 10 year. So, you know, the market's in sort of this little funny limbo right now. And that next inflation print, I think, is going to be, be really important. You and I and you on this program and we on this program, we're talking about whether or not we pass 10% at a time when folks were saying, oh, it's not going to get much past seven. Um, is is there a sense that we're going to go double digit? Is that becoming a little bit more of an I, expectation? I, I, among I, folks? Think, I think the, the, the view is no, that we won't. Um, but I think the question is here is sort of where do we where do we settle in at and how long are we there? You know, so if we're say, you know, it starts to trickle down to about, you know, six percent but then we're at six percent for a while that's too high and we'll have to continue to, to increase rates so so we'll see i mean we're in a in a bit of a uh, like like i said just a, a little bit of a show me period here right now um trying to read the tea leaves on on the fed data so i think that next inflation number will be particularly important there'll be a lot of eyes on it um, and what happened to the space group, uh, right? I mean, as you said, some of the smaller names were buffeted. Uh, Virgin um, posted a little bit of a setback, right? I mean, the ex- expectation that they were going to get into flight uh, with passengers uh, sooner. Um, talk to us about the group and what affected that sort of negative space sentiment, because there's a lot going for the segment. Yeah. So it's, you know, and if you look at those two in particular, um, uh, both uh, um, you know, Virgin Galactic and uh, Astra reported this week, and I think they disappointed their their investors with a, a push out of their operations. So it you know it looks like you know, the timing on when Virgin Galactic is going to start up its its commercial operations 
got effectively pushed out by six months or so. We'll ultimately see when, um, but that's happened several times. So you know that investors start scratching their heads when you start to see these things happen several times. What's what's really going on? Uh, and you know, Astra has sort of had a had a similar thing, and their push out might even be a little bit longer than that. Um, so that you know, in 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 a market that's I would argue a bit risk adverse at the moment that that never goes over well. That's kind of what's happened there. There are other names to report. We'll see what happens. They haven't reported yet. Um, there's Rocket Lab and you know, uh, Planet Planet Lab and, and, and some other things. Um, so we'll see where they where they go. Sash, uh, let me uh, bring you in uh, to talk about what some of the broader market uh, drivers were in Europe and how the group in Europe performed as a consequence. I get the feeling that the US, you you are at least a quarter ahead of Europe, if not more, in terms of all of the economic developments. Um, Ron's already talking about inflation rates coming down, Europe inflation rates still going up. So, you know, this week, UK 10%, Bank of England forecasting 13% by the end of the year. Um, and, you know, if you look at sort of gas prices, yeah, gas, I mean, uh, petrol, diesel prices have come down about 5% from their peaks, but they're still double what they were 18 months ago. And it doesn't look as if they're going to go down, uh, come down a huge amount more anytime soon. It's probably worth, you know, for, for some of our business, just recalling that in Europe, a much greater proportion of uh, petrol and diesel prices is comprised of government taxes than, than you have in the US. So um, they tend to be, uh, uh, A, the more expensive would be. They don't tend to be as volatile. Once they get to a level, they tend to sit there. What else is Europe worrying about? I mean, recession is clearly the major concern uh, in many countries. I'd say probably most in Europe, particularly, I mean, uh, certainly in the UK, it has been the debate this week. Um, And the question is how long the recession is going to be. Two quarters would would be dreamy, frankly. Bank of England is saying five quarters. Um, That starts to get very, very serious indeed. Um, But just, you know, one other point to highlight here. In fact, a couple, one, Inflation rates depend on government policy in Europe much more than you might think. So UK, 5%, uh, 10% inflation, France, 5 6% inflation. The big difference is that the French government owns the utility companies and hence has put a cap on, on uh, energy prices, electricity and gas. So what they're doing is instead of having runaway inflation, the French government deficit goes up. That's a political choice. Um, but it does mean you get very, very different outcomes in different countries in Europe. The other point I'd highlight, the thing that is going most wrong in Europe uh, is probably water. Western Europe is running out of water very, very fast because we've had a five-month drought. Uh, they're starting to truck water into some towns in, uh, in France. There are widespread hosepipe bans about to occur uh, in the UK. And you know, the water crisis is almost as important uh, in, uh, you know, politically as uh, still high um, gas fuel prices here. So how did this affect the sector? The sector was, you know, I think flat down would be charitable this week. Some of the big, some of the big stocks, particularly the defence stocks, had a dreadful week, um, as they reported. We should come back to Hansolt and Ryan Vital later. But no, you know, I mean, the sector ended pretty much in the red for the, um, uh, for the whole week. And it doesn't feel like it's going to get better anytime soon. 
Um, Let me just uh, jump over to Ron, uh, and I apologize, Richard, because there are a couple of important things uh, we want to talk about, and we're going to get to earnings in a minute as well. Ron, did the CHIPS Plus, right? I mean, we're looking at a $250 billion technology investment by the United States, right? About $50 billion of which is for microchips, but the rest is in American education, engineering, hard sciences, right? Step up the U.S. um, ability uh, to compete. There's uh, some very um, good domestic language in there, but also an intention by some that, hey, look, this should extend to allies and partners, and how do we do it smarter? Um, And then, of course, we've got the climate, uh, right? I mean, the big reconciliation package that's going to go through uh, because Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are on it. That is a massive package uh, for climate, for health, as well as uh, on on taxes. Are those having an impact? I mean, what kind of impact did they have last week on on trading, especially toward uh, the end of the week? Yeah, honestly, not a heck of a lot. I mean, and that hasn't really come up in investor questions. I think, you know, the, the, there's a broad consensus that we're you know seeing defense spending rise, um, uh, and nobody's really questioned that yet with uh, the spending on uh, these these other areas of uh, the government. Um, so, so we'll see. But I, I think you know broadly in the investment community, it really hasn't um, generated much questions or had much of an impact right. on on the market. And, and I, just to refresh the audience in case they haven't been listening to Ron, I mean, right, that's basically because everybody expected 50 to 60 billion. And that's basically where we're going to come out is 50 to 60 billion in terms of, a, you know, closer to 60 billion, as we heard on um, uh, our uh, Friday podcast. It, it, uh, one thing, Bob, I just ahead. might add, if you go back to, you know, not that long ago, I mean, the expectation uh, on the street was we'd see defense spending going down, right? I mean, just just after the, the Biden team got elected, I mean, the expectation you'd see uh, defense spending decline, you know, both in nominal and real terms, and um, uh, and and that's it's, it's not what we're seeing, right? So, um, so th- I think there's been a bit of a sea change in terms of investor expectations, uh, and you know that was more cemented because of what's going on uh, in Eastern Europe. But, uh, but for sure, there's clearly you know, a, a change in investment perspective on defense than where we were just a year ago. It's always good to have positive surprises until the whole ecosystem gets used to that, right? And then they're angry that they didn't get a better surprise than the one they got. I love markets. Um, Speaking about loving markets, uh, Richard, uh, walk us through um, two interesting uh, big uh, stories uh, of the week, right? I mean, um, and we're a little bit delayed, I think, talking about uh, the the JetBlue Spirit deal, 3.2 billion would create the nation's fifth largest air carrier, uh, which I think is important, and some antitrust questions that would go around that, right? I mean, given that we have a very activist administration when it comes to that. And then also, you know, hearty congratulations to the L3 Harris uh, air tractor team. The Skywarden uh, succeeded. I think it's 72 aircraft uh, for uh, uh, special operations, the U.S. Special Operations Command, a gigantic tail dragger. So anybody's a real airplane guy uh, is uh, is always impressed when we're bringing tail draggers back into back into service. Um, but it was also a surprising order for some, right? I mean, especially when you consider, for example, we have so many. Um, you know, everybody knows that Textron's one of our sponsors, but the Wolverine is a derivative of the JPATS uh, of the T6 Texan. And there was an expectation, hey, we can reduce our operating costs. We already have these in inventory. Kind of walk us through uh, both of these storylines and, and what do you think uh, they mean? And I should point out to the audience that you actually don't have a dog in either of these fights. So, Yeah, that's right. Thanks for pointing that out. I find them fascinating, though. And you're right, there's kind of a unifying theme here. I guess low cost is the unifying theme, Uh, you know, looking at the first one. um, 
these are two ends of the LCC market from an airline perspective. You know, Spirit and Frontier are as low cost as you get. You know, European analogs, of course, are, well, Ryanair, Air, cheap, 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 stimulate the market, bring in lots of low cost, charge them $5 for the ticket and $2 to use the bathroom or a bottle of water or both. And uh, that is a good way of stimulating the market. But given everything that's going on in macro trends, you know, you could make an argument that JetBlue has it right with, you know, premium low cost, you know, basically, no, it's not the cheapest going, but it's nice. It's, you know, it's, they even have, of course, the equivalent of first class going to London with their mint service. That to me- And, and I should point that out is they, it's tremendous. So, right, I mean, is, I didn't is. need to say and, that. They do a terrific job. And just like their CEO a long time ago on founding the airline said, right, you're gonna fly me once, you're gonna wanna fly me again, which is the whole mantra. And it has a very devoted base. David Nealman, of course, legendary yeah. for that. And, exactly. um, you know, most likely at the end of the day, you know, my, my Wall Street-minded colleagues can chime in more on the motivations, but it was probably, you know, the mostly cash, all cash offer of 3.7 million. <laughs> That's probably what did it. But I think we can come into some interesting market conclusions. You know, there's this sort of headlong rush to stimulate the market by making things as cheap as possible. But over in Europe and to a certain extent here, there's a thinking, you know, we might have reached the limits of growth. There's even, of course, uh, infrastructure rationing, actually a sort of backdoor form of taxation being talked about at Heathrow and certainly at Schiphol over at Amsterdam. Um, you can make an argument that, you know, why not walk towards, you know, migrating towards higher fares before the tax man does it for you. And uh, therefore, maybe the days of stimulating large numbers of, uh, you know, bachelor party demand with incredibly low costs are possibly over and that the JetBlue market or the JetBlue model for the market might be more relevant in the long haul. I throw this out as just a, an item for discussion, but I thought it was uh, fascinating from that angle. And the other thing that's fascinating is it's very obvious here. You know, people had originally thought, wow, what a culture clash, you know, uh, you're going to have the low cost folks meet the kind of high cost LCC folks. How, how are they going to merge the two? And the thinking now is, no, there's no merger. Basically, JetBlue takes over the slots, the aircraft, most of all, perhaps the crew, and uh, solves a whole bunch of problems <laughs> and just gets to grow through, you know, you will be absorbed at that, that kind of model. And, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, in a, in a time where we are constrained. That was, that was great. By, that ten, the 10 points, you stuck the landing. Stuck the landing in that one. That's very kind. Thank you. Um, you know, in a time where production is constrained, people are very constrained, and infrastructure is com constrained. Why not say, ah, screw this whole culture stuff. We're just going to take your resources, and well, yeah, you will be absorbed. That to me is an interesting story. Like, why not? Right? You instantly get to grow. Um, you know, same planes in many cases, and obviously people trained to do that. You just have to train them to be higher cost LCC types who actually don't have, you know, a, a high level of uh, disregard for the people they're transporting or something like that and are used to blue potato chips or whatever else. Now, armed overwatch, I think, is fascinating. I, this was always, you know, fundamentally low cost. SOCOM was going to buy 75 primarily for training and uh, interoperability with allies, including. Uh, Afghanistan. I guess that seems to have been overtaken by events. But I would have, yes, I'm like you. I would have thought, okay, they could go one of two ways. Wolverine, because it's common with JPATs, you go straight from training to light attack, you have light attack training with allies. 
or you go Super Tucano because that's what the Afghans had. And a lot of third world militaries have the Super Tucano. Why not? Um, instead, they went with something, yeah, a tail dragger. This is pretty extraordinary. I guess they probably like it for very rugged field performance. So, you know, the sort of thing you might face in AFRICOM. Uh, or, you know, on, on some island that had long since been forgotten by cartographers, but somehow still has some kind of conflict on it. I, um, I, I you know, I, I can't help but wonder in a time when we're facing serious big boy threats against Vladimir Putin and, and President Xi and China, China, how this is really an action item. But nevertheless, it is an interesting development. It's all I, I not to further beat up on it, but it is noteworthy that we will now be the only, if this happens, the only military that can be called a, you know, developed world military that has combat aircraft in this class. I mean, people say, ah, it's for fighting guerrillas. Well, Israel has to worry about guerrillas and the idea of them procuring something in this class is simply inconceivable. Ditto for anyone else in the ranks of the developed military. Sash, if you feel the RAF is in the market for something that has, you know, <laughs> these operating characteristics, please correct me, but I doubt it. Uh, so again, just to wrap up, the connection between these two developments is low cost. Uh, fascinating. Um, Sash, did you have anything you just wanted to add? Uh, because I'm pretty familiar with the RAF. I don't recall any large converted agro close air support airplanes. No, um, but the... Um, the British Army finally got out of propeller aircraft about 10 years ago when it, it transferred all of its Pilatus Britain defenders, uh, which in its civil variant is the Islander, um, from uh, the army where they had been used for counterinsurgency roles to, um, uh, to the Metropolitan Police where they used for counterterrorism. Counter um, but that was the last large scale use of really high vibration, astonishingly slow, unpressurized. Uh, aircraft in, um, uh, you know, uh, in that case, a twin in, in British military service. We've still got some uh, Beach King airs, clearly, but uh, the transfer of the Islander or the Defenders was a, um, a major upgrade to the British Armed Forces. Let's let's get to earnings because there's a, a lot more earnings to talk about. And we've got a couple of very big storylines I want to discuss, including uh, Airbus uh, and um, the bizarre and evolving Airbus uh, Qatar uh, story. Ron, walk us through lots of interesting companies. Uh, unsurprisingly, you have an underperform on uh, Bombardier, and we can get to that uh, in a minute. And, you know, there were some interesting news, right? I mean, uh, uh, Spirit Error Systems, uh, you know, had uh, had a good quarter, you know, some growth, supply chain challenges like everybody else. HII performed well year over year. Um, uh, you know, Lidos uh, has made progress, you know, although it did have some one-time charges, right? So I mean, it's generally uh, kind of a mixed bag. Walk us through the group and what you thought the highlights were of the uh, earnings and what other consistent themes there are, right, aside from inflation, workforce, and supply chain, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a couple of things. Um, you know, and I have to kind of go back to one theme, which is supply chain, because that uh, you know, came up again in the quarter for everybody. Uh, and, and we're starting to see emerge different, a different take on supply chain. Some suppliers, there are some OEMs and companies were more forthcoming about supply chain than others. Um, and, I, and I think the reality with supply chain is it's actually far worse than any company's telling you. And the companies that were, my sense, were maybe more forthcoming and honest about it, paid a bit of a penalty for that, which might not be fair because I think they were just trying to put out there, 
yeah, it's, it's not great. Um, and the companies that glossed over it and just kind of maybe whitewashed it a little bit, um, you know, didn't, didn't pay the penalty. So I think we'll, we'll ultimately see um, engines have become a big challenge for the business jet manufacturers. Uh, and it, it really is you know, constraining the rate at which they can fabricate uh, aircraft, uh, particularly going into next year. Um, there's pluses and minuses with that. You know, you were in an environment where there's strong demand for business aircraft. So, um, you know, if you have a constrained supply and strong demand, that's generally pretty good for prices. However, uh, if you look at the available for sale fleet of business aircraft, it's starting to, to creep up a bit. Um, you know, it were pretty remarkable numbers. Uh, if you look at the available for sale fleet of business aircraft, it bottomed out one and a half percent of the fleet uh, back in March. Uh, we're up to about three percent now. Uh, generally speaking, you know, a healthy market was considered 10% of the fleet. So we're still well below that, but there are more airplanes floating around. So one more notable broker uh, this week mentioned that uh, uh, with uh, the Falcon 7X, you know, back in March, there was maybe two on the market and now there's maybe 14 on the market, right? So it's, you're, you're seeing some more inventory get out of the market. And, you know, if you look at, you know, the flight cycles, that's starting to, I'd say, roll over, normalize a bit more. So not that the conditions in the business market are, uh, business jet market are in any way getting bad, but the white hot market that we once saw, that's probably no longer with us. And things are, it looks like getting back to a more normal cadence. Um, and then when you look at um, some of the other names, it, it was a bit of a, a messy quarter. So you know, Spirit Aerosystems, for example, um, they had a lot of things going on. Um, you know, one of the, the issues that they talked about was on the A220. Uh, one of their suppliers went bankrupt. Uh, nobody was really expecting that. And they had to deal with that. They had some charges related to the Russian sanctions and some other things. So there was just a lot of moving pieces and kind of messy. And in the current market, investors don't really like that. So the stock reflected, uh, you know, that disappointment. Bombardier, who you mentioned, uh, they actually had a very, very fine quarter. Um, they generated a bunch of cash. And I think people were very pleased with that. And that was reflected uh, in the share price. Embraer reported this week and they showed good performance in their core margins. Uh, and you know, the market, I think, was really pleased with that. So, you know, kind of a, a, across different companies, it was a, a bit a bit of a mixed bag. Um, so uh, you know, we still have some more, you know, coming in. Uh, we cover a bunch of companies now. So there's a long tail of earnings. But, you know, there was, you know, it was, it was really kind of mixed this week. Sash, uh, a lot of European companies, you mentioned uh, Hensolt and uh, Rheinmetall as uh, being um, chastened, I guess, in their earnings, right? I mean, the sense that there was going to be a big German wave and, right, the disconnect between expectations, uh, you know, and reality uh, by uh, investors' roles also uh, posted. Walk us through, you know, some of the, um, the takeaways from European earnings over the course of the week. The three big European companies that reported towards the end of the week ended the week severely down, you know, between five and north of 10%. Um, I mean, in fact, you know, Rheinmetall was down 12% on the day of its uh, results. Hensolt had two days of sort of, uh, of, of five, 6% plus falls. Rolls-Royce down about, about the same as well. It was a really, really disappointing week. Different reasons. Rolls-Royce, first of all, because that's the simple one. Rolls-Royce is turning up, but it's a very, very slow uh, turn. It's a civil aerospace stock that is hugely exposed to the slowest recovering part of the aviation market, which is long haul. Rolls-Royce is a wide-body engine manufacturer, period. Um, 
certainly as far as all of their aftermarket is concerned, and that just isn't turning up. And remember, an enormous proportion of its wide-body engines, uh, the Trent 700 for the A330, are in service in China, where the market has been, you know, bouncing up and down off dead for most of this year because of the various uh, lockdowns. So, you know, Rolls-Royce's numbers, um, you know, it produces 5 billion of revenues, 100 million odd of, uh, of uh, profit before tax, or not even 100 million of, of, of operating earnings and a loss of 100 million-ish uh, before tax. Um, it's, it's lost in the rounding at this stage. It should turn up at some stage in the next couple of years. Our feeling is it's going to take longer rather than less long. And the other story clearly is there's a change with CEO going on with Warren East uh, being retired. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that makes things very, very uncertain for Rolls. You know, what will Rolls-Royce be for, in five years' time? Will they actually be a serious bidder for the next narrow-body aircraft, whether it's produced by Boeing or Airbus or not? Uh, my guess would be probably not, in which case Rolls-Royce is, you know, trending towards the, um, uh, you know, trending towards the second division. All that may take a decade or so. Now, the two German companies, Hensoldt, Defen uh, Defense Electronics, Rheinmetall, predominantly land systems, uh, had, you know, results in line, but the statements and the, the call, management calls were very, very downbeat. Why? Because Germany just isn't spending fast enough. Actually, Germany isn't really spending very much at all. So you remember, six months ago, the story was a 100 billion euro special fund for defence. Everybody was going to make out like bandits. Um, you know, every programme in Germany could be afforded and then some. Uh, and what's happened since then? Just not very much. The German parliament got round to approving the 100 billion funds just before they went on their summer recess a couple of weeks ago. But none of the orders flowed from that. They now have to go through the uh, German parliament one by one in the fall of this year and into next year and thereafter. And the, you know, the message from both Hensoff and Ryan Natal was, yeah, the work will come, but it's not going to come this year. You know, the orders won't come through this year. The order flow next year will be slow, 2024, 25, 26, probably a hell of a lot better. Um, uh, jam tomorrow stories, actually jam in a couple of years time stories like that are really uh, not well received by investors. Investors wanted a better quarter and what they got was huge deferral of expectations. Um, and I do think there's a, you know, a broader issue here, which is that Germany talked quite well about increasing defence spending uh, in the first quarter. It's not coming through. They're playing games with their budgets. You know, they're saying part of the 2% the of GDP will come from one budget, part from another, but they don't want to, you know, spoil the overall budget deficit uh, for the government. And you get the feeling they don't actually understand there's a war on. Uh, and I find that personally very depressing. Uh, there are more important things than, um, you know, German budgetary discipline, frankly, at this stage. But German government and parliament don't seem to see, uh, see that. So it was, a, it was a bad way to end the week uh, for you know, Central European defence because Germany isn't putting its weight. Uh, and uh, indeed, it's it's sort of interesting, right? I mean, we've heard that the Titan vendor, uh, right, this turning moment, uh, that there was a lot of impetus uh, and energy behind it. And uh, this is the kind of thing that makes people sometimes uh, scratch their heads a little bit uh, about what it means. Um, Richard, any observations on, on earnings from uh, all of uh, the companies that we heard so far and some of your uh, takeaways before we get to uh, the, uh, you know, the inevitable Airbus Qatar uh, drama and Ron uh, want to get, um, you know, your take on some of the comments that Airbus leadership, uh, both uh, the CEO Guillaume Fleury 
as well as the CFO, uh, Dominic Azam, uh, had to tell your uh, Europe team because I know they convened a very, very well uh, attended attended meeting. But Richard, sort of give us your, your sense on um, what you heard earnings wise and what you think, you know, jumps out at you as being most interesting. You know, it's just this weird I, I don't think we've ever seen this in our careers, just this weird mix where it's uh, it's less about execution, not at all to do with demand. And uh, as Ron suggests, uh, supply chain. And, <laughs> you know, you, you just sort of throw up your hands and say, all right, you, at least in my judgment, a lot of these guys just get a pass because things are just that completely messed up in supply chain. And I hope Ron's not right, but I suspect he might be that things are even worse than people were letting on. That's just one of those uh, one of those environments that I, I haven't seen in 30 something years and uh, I, I hope to never see again. Right. Um, it, it is, uh, it is interesting because what I find fascinating is the song changes for everybody almost at the same time. So everybody doesn't want to talk about workforce and a whole bunch of issues that people internally and privately are talking about. And it's like, Oh no, it's not, we're managing, we're managing, we're, we're not managing. We're not, ma-. you know what I mean? And it's like all of a sudden the story changes and I guess it gives cover because everybody's changing the story at the same time, right? And if I could just to... add to that, you know, I mean, last week, I'll, I'll go ahead and reverse myself. Last week, I, I said, well, not to wish ill upon the economy, but maybe if things slacken up a bit and, you know, we, we get a little, we, we, we cool down a bit, then uh, maybe there'll be resources freed up for the defense and aerospace sector. Oh, boy, not with today's news, right? 528,000 hired. Um, we're going to have a hard time attracting people, especially on the commercial side, that's going to be outcompeted by defense with its cost plus contracts. Just a very quick financial thing, uh, Sash, from a European uh, perspective, uh, right? A very weak uh, euro. How does that play into uh, trade overall? How does it hurt? How does it help um, Airbus and European manufacturers at large? A pound has been pretty weak as well. Yeah, well, the, 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 the euro dollar is the single most important currency in um, in aviation. If Airbus had a whole load of, uh, you know, available slots uh, for delivery next year, the year after, the year after that, i.e. near term, a weak euro would be fantastic because they could um, basically take 10% off the dollar price of their aircraft uh, and they'd be making the same amount of money or more in euros, even after, you know, hedging and everything else. Problem is Airbus doesn't actually have any slots available until second half of the decade. Um, they're very, very well hedged as well. So they don't have the commercial advantage that um, I think actually even quite a lot of investors wanted them to have. They really rode back on this uh, at, at their results last week. And um, you know, this, uh, the same applies to, to an extent for the European engine companies, MTU and, and, and Safran. Uh, it, the hedging that they've got in place really dulls the effect of this. But it's a, um, it certainly makes U.S. Equip- defense equipment more expensive in Europe. But I don't think that when a country decides to buy an F-35, they're terribly worried about the price. What they're worried about is, will it make Russia sit up and think? And if it does, they'll pay what it takes to buy F-35s. Look at the Czech Republic. And I just want to point out, right, I mean, Ron was talking about, you know, capacity and, um, you know, we mentioned uh, challenges at Heathrow. I think that was you, Richard, right? I mean, ultimately, uh, American Airlines has said it's going to cut 2% of its September and October flights, uh, right? So, you know, certainly interesting to see where the market is going to go and how it's going to go um, compared to uh, the rest of of the economy and availability of people. Um, Just real quick, uh, Richard, how bad or smooth was it flying back from Madrid for you guys, right? I mean, each one of us has has a, a number of very, I think, illustrative stories about uh, air travel, right? None of us 
across the Atlantic on time, on schedule, uh, whether it was, you know, getting on the plane, the plane being delayed, the the nightmare at Heathrow going out, the hype uh, going in, the nightmare of Heathrow coming out. What was the experience like uh, coming out of Madrid and flying to Dallas? Oh, you know, we got lucky yet again. Um, I, one day we won't, but this time we did. <laughs> and okay, even though there, there was a there was a mob scene, you know, but uh, it wasn't wasn't too bad. Um, they didn't lose our luggage. They politely asked in a menacing way if we would like to wait for another day <laughs> to fly back because they were full. But we said no, no, thanks. We'd like to go home now, and um, they they got us home. So uh, you know, it, given the headlines, it almost seems like a miracle happened. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we got off late. They politely asked in a menacing way. I'm going to try to remember that uh, and what that what that really looks like uh, in a really Spanish perspective in a sort of darker Goya-esque uh, sort of way. Um, Ron, was it a smooth flight for you guys getting to Ireland for your family vacation? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, in hmm. fact, um, it was very smooth. Um, and uh, so, yeah, no complaints there. I mean, I would I would say and maybe we just a timing block whatever you want to call it um that you know the, the airport in um in dublin is in a different situation than uh heathrow right so i you know this whatever but yeah it was uh, easy peasy we'll see on the way home what happens but in the way here easy peasy Indeed. Um, and we're now going to go through a little bit of a lightning round, and I'm going to go to you, Stash, to explain the Airbus Qatar uh, saga. Tim Hafer of um, uh, Reuters, uh, terrific reporter, uh, and wrote a great uh, story about that. I don't have any mental example of um, an aircraft company essentially cutting a customer off on a dispute like this, especially somebody that was a launch customer, for example, for the A350. Walk us through the story. It's turns, right? There was the cancellation of an A321neo contract as well. You know, we're, we're talking about 100 aircraft between the A321 deal uh, and the A350 deal, right? It's a 20 A350, say, and the rest are 321s. And Airbus has a sterling reputation for delivering a good product, and how does this play into it or not? Or does this make Qatar look bad? I mean, it's just very hard to sort of see where we're going and, and how this actually benefits either of the two parties, ultimately. It, it is remarkable. I've never known uh, a, um, an, aerospace ma- an, an, air, an aerospace manufacturer go out and sue a customer, let alone cut off their um, uh, orders in, in a really a very, very direct way as this. Um, on the other hand, and you know, I think in the interest of fairness, Qatar is an astonishingly difficult customer. They would say they're demanding. Other people say they're difficult. Um, it may well be somewhere in between, but extraordinarily so. And there's clearly been bad blood between Qatar and Airbus for some time. One question that I think we have to ask is whether Airbus is able to do this because Airbus has now got such a strong lead in the global market that actually they don't need Qatar anymore. That's remarkable because uh, that tells us something about Airbus's um, near dominant position in the market at the moment. There is also a broader issue, which is in the future, as aircraft get longer and longer range, you don't need to stop in the Gulf to get from Europe to the Far East, from the US to the Far East, from, you know, from anywhere. So the Gulf might become strategically less important, and hence Gulf carriers might become strategically less important than they have been for the last 30 years. 
it is still remarkable to go to court uh, over this and remarkable to, um, uh, you know, to go around just sort of cancelling uh, orders in a fairly arbitrary way. Um, I am interested by the fact that no other airline has publicly come up with the same problems as Qatar has. I'm interested that no other airworthiness authority has publicly come up with the same problems that Qatar has. There is, a, there is an issue, which is that Qatar, the airline, Qatar, the state, and Qatar, the airworthiness authority, have, are, overlap a great deal in terms of personalities, control, and so forth. So it's actually very, very difficult to separate them out, whereas at least in the US, you could separate out American Airlines from the FAA from um, you know, the US government. Um, and you could do that for any any other European uh, country, but you know nobody else has has dis- decided to you know throw their hat in and join Qatar in this. Um, so it's going to be decided ultimately in uh, London in the courts. Um, and you know Airbus has, has over over a period this year gradually um, cut you know cancelled pretty much every single extant order, uh, and they must feel remarkably. Um, sure of themselves to do that, because otherwise this is going to be a pretty expensive uh, legal case. Ron, um, from an engineering standpoint, I mean, is there any insight? I mean, I, mean I, I know that you're not, you know, you haven't deeply studied this issue, right? But it's, you know, the, the Qatar point is these are quality problems that actually are safety of flight. You have Airbus and EASA uh, coming in, uh, you know, European regulators and coming in and saying, I mean, these are not safety of flight. They're more cosmetic. Uh, obviously, you have sand and a whole bunch of issues, right? I mean, it's a pretty inv- abrasive environment there. But other people operate airplanes and they don't seem to be having this problem, right? I mean, is there any insight that, that you gained? And I know that uh, your team, your European team, Ben, uh, hosted a conversation with Guillaume and Dominic uh, last week. Um, what were some takeaways? And did you guys actually address this issue at all? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, from an engineering standpoint, without really knowing a lot of the details, I mean, it's it's hard to speculate other than to the points you made. If nobody else is seeing this and other operators operate in a similar operating environment, um, it's hard to believe it's just showing up on um, um, one carrier's airplanes. That being said, however, as we all know from the 787, when you do fabricate things and in carbon fiber, and maybe there was some fabrication difficulty. Maybe they got a bad batch. Who, know, I mean, who knows, right? So, without really looking at it in in, in detail, it's hard to say. Uh, that said, however, it, it does seem kind of unlikely that it's just their problem. But there are scenarios where it could be. Um, so, I, I think you know, kind of both ways. You have to keep an open mind. Um, that being said, uh, if you remember, I do believe uh, Qatar came out and said, you know what. We're not going to get uh, GTFs after they ordered the GTF because they had you know some issues, teething issues with the GTF early on. Um, and, um, and if memory serves me right, I, I think um, uh, the folks at uh, United Technologies Aerospace at the time uh, were like, okay, see ya. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they were bent out of shape by it, um, losing them as a customer. So I don't think this is the first time where um, shaking them out of your backlog from... Uh, an OE, maybe not an airframer, but from, at least from an engine guy, we've seen this before. So to, to Sasha's point, um, they are probably a pretty um, uh, demanding customer uh, and maybe overly so. So so we'll see ultimately what happens there. Uh, the, the conversations that um, you know Ben's team had uh, with, with the Airbus folks uh, really focused on other stuff. 
uh, you know, they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, 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 demand for aircraft. Uh, they mentioned, and I think they've mentioned this in other forums, they're starting to see, you know, kind of green shoots in the wide body market. Um, they're seeing a ton of demand for, for A321s um, that they really do expect to see a rate of 75 to be held through the second half of the 2020s uh, on uh, the A320, A321 family. Uh, so they walked through that kind of stuff. There wasn't much discussion about uh, the Qatar thing, uh, if, if, if at all. Richard, anything you want to add before we wrap up for the week? Uh, no, you know, and one thing that is sort of interesting is that Airbus at Farnborough was saying that they're starting to see green shoots in the wide body market, which probably informs their thinking. And uh, even talking about maybe the odd uh, A350 production increase. So this uh, might be a, a sign of something good happening in the one part of the entire aerospace industry that is seriously depressed, which of course is wide bodies. Thanks very much, everybody. Really appreciate it. Thanks very much for joining us. As always, it wouldn't be Sunday uh, without you guys. Hope you have a terrific day, uh, great weekend, and a great week. And look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much, and safe travels to you all. Yeah, it's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. As always, thank you, Vago. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. Great to be back in Washington. Great to be on again. <laughs>